Hello, and welcome to episode zero, the prelude to counter-insurgency. We've traveled down from the hills of the last series and into the lush, fertile rice valleys and the rich soil of the Chao Priya River Basin that will birth empires of Lawao, Sukhothai, Ayutthaya, Thonburi, and Siam. Teak logs are flowing down the canals of Lana into Siam, while market relations push their way up. It's the year 2444, or as the Westerners call it, the turn of the century, 1900. Hiding in the hills that we've left behind are many coming perils. The dangerous comrades in green caps carrying little red books. Communists are massing, arming, organizing, and learning. In these rice fields too, the peasants are restless. A millennia of subjugation is reaching breaking point. Welcome then. Welcome to our new series on counter-insurgency, or the full title that won't fit kindly into the episode name section, Counter-Insurgency and the Coup of the Forest, how counter-insurgency policies laid the groundwork for capitalist development in Thailand. This series is going to be a little different from the last one. For starters, we've got much higher production values. And also, we will abandon the chronological narrative, for the most part, and embrace a more scattergun approach to analyze the neo-mandala of the Thai state and its superstructures. In this series, I intend to investigate and demonstrate how deforestation, modern social sciences, counter-insurgency, contemporary farming practices, and 20th century imperialism developed market forces in Thailand, leading to the mass enclosure of a once wild and free landscape, the forest, a sanctum and a refuge for those fleeing subjugation. In short, this will be, for the most part, a political ecology reading of counter-insurgency, what I call the coup of the forest. In episode one, we will start with the foresters of old, the imperial teak extractors who built the initial framework for this coup and the counter-insurgency that was to follow. In episode two, we will investigate the post-war political settlement of the state and capital which I call the Neo-Mandala system of governance and the campaign of mass murder that it instituted. In episode 3, we will reveal the Thai strategies of tension, the Gladio-esque networks, the right-wing paramilitaries, the death squads, the role of the CIA and the brave peasants who stood against it. In episode 4, we will shine a spotlight on the profession of applied anthropology as Western social scientists turn warmongers as part of a bloody campaign of anti-communist restructuring of Asia. In episode 5, we will take a break and go outside. We will walk through the remaining pristine forests with the indigenous people there, picking fruit, swimming in the clear mountain streams, and hunting for small game. In episode 6, we will see the opening of the frontier, as the release valve is turned, gushing colonizers forth into the forested lands, our sanctum, where our comrades once sought protection and once found peace. 
And in episode 7, once the fighting is finally done, once peace is declared by the state, we will ask, why does the Cold War campaign of counter-insurgency still remain to this day? To then quickly state my thesis on counter-insurgency, it is thus. At the turn of the 20th century, capital utilized the state to enforce a program of counter-insurgency to spread market relations. This program of counter-insurgency had two targets. Target 1. Communism. Target 2. Anything else antithetical to market relations, be it natural farmers or peasants utilizing common forest land. Both targets which are inextricably tied to the forest. I intend to demonstrate how and why this happened. Anyway, listener, I hope you're good. I hope your cats, dogs, gardens, farms and other loved ones are healthy. But for now, I'll leave you with a story from one of Isan's finest writers, Poul Gadad, who kindly gave us permission to read from his book, translated by Tyrol Habakon. So I will now read from Particles of Perpetual Paralysis by Paul Gadat, the chapter titled, or the short story titled, An Obstacle to Apichatsi's Exercise Regime. Quote, The sound of the temple's evening transmission fades and the nighttime insect lullaby once again fills the village. Only one dim light remains in each house, and those without any illumination are those who forgot to pay their fines to the electricity unit. Around an hour ago, every house was still lit up. Now it's around 9pm. The evening Dharma lecture begins a little after 8pm. Another way to cast it is that the transmission of the Dharma show begins immediately after the Royal Household News and goes for about 45 minutes or an hour at most. The entire village dwells in taut control. The shadowy murk of each house makes it seem like a haunted village in a novel or a horror film. They are grouped tidily along both sides of the paved road in an eclipse, with the majority at the edge of the road. The roads run through the centre and around the edge of the village. The roads around the right and left of the village are roughly 30 metres at the narrowest point from the road bisecting the village and around 35 metres at its widest. The only remaining nameable living thing is the village internal self-defence and order preservation force. A division is composed of 10 people plus one monk, all armed. They go out to patrol as soon as the strains of the Dharma show from the temple go silent. As for the sounds of the nocturnal insects, it is impossible to say whether or not they are alive because it is impossible to know what kind of insects make the sounds. Are they still alive, or do their voices linger, even though they are dead? It is not only sometimes or the majority of time that it is impossible to clearly name such things like this, but it's just how it is. The house is around one wa from the road's edge, with a cream-coloured concrete wall about three feet high. Champak trees, wasana trees, many different flowering trees are planted along the wall. 
The empty space that remains is a wide, nicely paved concrete patch for the walking exercise regime of Api Chatsi, the owner of the house. The orange of the overlapping roof tiles has begun to fade. Cobwebs fill the free upstairs rooms and envelop the curtains, bedding, wardrobes and ceiling fans. A dim light from downstairs pierces through the curtains of one of the rooms to make visible the shadow of a figure moving around. The other two rooms are held in darkness. The thick walls overlaid with zinc with narrow openings. A pickup truck is parked outside. Pieces of wood from the old house are piled up on a raised platform. Termites nest with joy. The wood is riddled with the round holes bored into them by carpenter bees. A coop for chickens and ducks has lattice walls and a grass roof. The land behind the house is without any dwellings or claims. There is nothing but a loamy smell that fills the nose. Bamboo bugs parade back and forth with the air of being the rightful owners of the house. A rainwater urn the size of several adults is placed against the edge of the wall in the shadows. The traces of a self-sufficient garden are now abandoned in green nets left below the fence. Drops of water remain in the kitchen a few steps away. A smoky smell from the charcoal stove, lit to steam rice, remains undispersed. Clay mixed with small stones was poured as a new foundation to raise the original floor up by about one cubit and support the twelve pillars of the two-story concrete house. The mixture extends in front of the house to create a paved patch. Apichatsi is carrying out his daily exercise regime of walking on the concrete patch. Tonight, he misses his usual time to walk because he just finished meeting with his fellow government teachers at 8pm. The Dharma show from the temple ended before he returned home. He usually exercises at about 7pm every day. He walks for around 45 minutes, bathes and then watches the news on television. He listens to the Dharma show broadcast from the temple and then goes to sleep. He lowers his big tall body down onto a soft mattress and passes the night asleep, dead to the world, leaving his wife to lay there sighing night after night. But tonight is the first night in many years that he is unable to adhere to his daily schedule. After he walks around the concrete area in front of his house for about 10 minutes, sweat begins to bubble up on his skin. Apichatsi feels bored with walking in circles on the patch in a way he has never felt before. This makes him open the gate and walk to the road beyond the walls of his house. The sounds of the unnameable nighttime insects are no more. Only silence applauds him in the instant he steps beyond the walls of his house. This is the first time in two or three years that he steps outside to walk along the village road in the late evening. No one does so, except for the village internal self-defense and order preservation force. That year, that one year, maybe three or so years ago, was the last time the village internal self-defense and order preservation force went out to patrol. That year, that one year, was a year that the Hat Sat de Ling, the mythical bird who dwells in the Himavanta forest, flapped its thunderous wings and descended to scoop up the corpse being set alight on the pyre to consume. 
The Undertaker ran away, helter-skelter, the first time it happened. Murmurings of the news spread throughout the village and to neighbouring villages and sub-districts before reaching the district, where they found that this had happened in other districts too. The Hat Saddling had come back to life to eat corpses once again. Filled with fear and dread, the villagers did not dare step out of their houses once nighttime descended. Yet even though the bird took a hold of the entire village, it was as if the vilification of the Hat Saddling had gone a bit too far. Many remained who were not afraid, and Apichatsi was among them. Despite being a science teacher, he believed in spirits and ghosts in line with his background and inculcation of his teachers. But he neither believed in nor feared the Hat Saddling. For him, it was possible that it was a vulture who was nocturnal. The Hat Saddling is a large bird with a pointy mouth like a trunk who lives in the Hima Vanta forest and eats the flesh of the dead. Sida shot the Hat Saddling with a poison arrow long ago, and ultimately, there is no way for it to descend to eat the corpses of the common people. Since time immemorial, the Hat Saddling has only consumed the corpses of kings, lords, elites, and big monks, only those high enough in the feudal system. There is no way that it could be possible. No way. Apichatsi remained unbudging with the villagers. But that year, that one year, was the year that he, along with five, six other middle-aged and elderly men, had to take on the duty of watching over the corpses being burnt on the pyre. They came face to face with the Hat Saddling, with the very first corpse that he and the gang guarded. The corpse was that of a young divorcee in her late twenties who was poisoned. Everyone said this after they saw that her fingernails and toenails were dark and separated from the skin. All the mothers, wives and lovers of the men in the village could not help but allow a small smile at the corner of their mouths to escape in satisfaction that somebody had finally dealt with her. The divorcee was no less notorious than Emma Hamilton, the young, chestnut-haired woman from an impoverished family in Liverpool in the late 18th and early 19th century. Emma, the servant, the queen of heaven, the high-class whore, the model, the diplomat's wife, whose portraits across Europe were the most numerous and exceeded those of Queen Victoria. This made her into an 18th century sex symbol, or perhaps incomparable for all time. The dead divorcee did not come from another class. Village men, young and old, came around to see her until the road was pitted and grooved by their steps. Everyone who wanted to sleep in the same room with the divorcee, whose body was said to have the most captivating, alluring scent that had never dissipated. Anyone within even a war of her could not extricate his body and mind. They lost all sense of normality and raved like madmen, taken hold of by the malicious spirit. But she was dead. Dead without anyone having their fill of her. No one was satiated. The presumption floating around was that one of the young and old men involved with her had poisoned her. The poison used was from a renowned Kui village in the north. 
People packed their own food and water when they went to visit or see relatives or run errands in the village because trusting them was impossible. The villagers attended the funeral and the religious ceremony. They played cards and gambled merrily. All hands were on deck without anyone shirking. Such unity usually only arose when the corpse was that of someone greatly revered, like a monk or an elderly person who was a pillar of the village. That day at dusk, once the monks finished their prayers and the casket was placed on the pyre and the fire lit, nearly every single villager rushed home. Even the undertaker left. Only a Pichatsi and the gang of men spanning ages holding hoes, guns, knives and axes, remained to guard the corpse upon the pyre. Once the fire upon the pyre had been burning for a while, they dug a trench to conceal themselves. They cut the branches they could find in the forest to create a frame to cover the opening with leaves. They raised their hoes and plunged them down with force into the sandy earth over and over again. Once it was finished, they went into the trench. Everyone's eyes remained glued to the pyre as they smoked and made conversation to pass the time. The burning of flesh and skin permeated the air. Pieces of firewood on the pyre turned into cinders. The coffin was nearly completely burned, but the body of the divorcee remained. The body was blackened, but still stretched out rather than being consumed by the fire as it should. Her skin was wrinkled, and some of her flesh had peeled and dissolved. Her bones were still white, as if she had merely undergone surgery. It became clear. I get it now. An old man spat and said, Go, finish it up. They picked up knives and axes and climbed out of the trench. Two went to cut branches in the forest to brush away the embers to clear a path and push the body off the fire. We have to chop the head off first, right? A Pichatsi asked. That's right, one of the old timers responded. And then cut off the legs and the other parts. Who's going to sever the neck? A young man asked. I'll do it, another young man volunteered. No way, you're still young nobodies. I'll do it, another old guy said. Got it, the young man asserted. They brushed away the pile of ash to clear a path. They pulled ten pieces of partially unburnt firewood, the size of adults and weighing 80 kilos, and put them to the side. They pushed the body off. Then they used axes to sever the blackened throat of the divorcee. Perfectly neat. Both eyes were fast shut. The sound of the axe coming down to cut three, four times. Her head was separated from her body and blood poured out onto the ground. Clumps of blood remained as if the dirt mixed with the sand in the forest and had become saturated with water until the earth vomited it up. After that, they cut up the legs, torso and arms into small pieces. By the time they chopped the body into small pieces, then threw it back into the pyre and piled up the firewood once again, the last light of the day had long gone. Everyone was soggy with sweat and out of breath. They sat and smoked, sat and rested, until they once again returned to the trench. It was a starry night in which the breeze blew and blew. The sound of burning flesh, skin and bones was sharp, and it was as if they were confident that everything would turn to ash along with the firewood, and the hat sadling would not show itself.
On the night of a new moon, every star sparkles, and it is impossible to know which star is which and which planet is which from merely looking. The light of the battery-powered torches illuminates ten heads, shaking back and forth. A murky shadow is moving in front of them. The road that encircles the village is bright, especially where the light falls upon it. The houses concealed in the dim shadows are surrounded by opaque walls, taller than the heads of humans, and then a row of banana forest. A field of darkness is on the other side of the road. The sound of frogs has disappeared into the late night. The dew has a slight loamy smell, just enough to convey that rice shoots populate the dark fields. One unit of the village internal self-defense and order preservation force stumbles, holding their battery-powered torches. The last one in line tightens his grip on his shotgun and walks backwards. Cautiously, they shine their lights in every direction, to the left, to the right, down to the ground, up to the sky. The monk is in the middle. Walk left, walk right. He utters an incantation over and over again. Apichatsi takes uniform steps. Left, right, left. Left, right, left. Breathing deeply, expanding his lungs. He slowly walks away from his house, along the road, through the middle of the desolate village. He doesn't have a clear destination. Would he walk to the end of the village and then back? Or walk to the end of the village and then turn right to walk along the road, around the village, back to his house, to bathe and go to sleep? He has no plan at all as he walks. He is led by pleasure. A pleasure of a magnitude ten million times greater than walking around in circles on his concrete patch. He feels relieved. Every step generates infinite energy. Apichatsi began a regime of walking outside his house not many years ago, after his belly expanded in size and drooped until it was difficult for him to bend over and tie his shoelaces. When he went for his annual physical for the unit, they recommended exercise. Otherwise, no one would dare guarantee that he could live long enough to repay his debt to the teacher's cooperative. Since then, he exercises at the same time, just before 8pm, every day. He treads carefully, step by step. He grows sweaty, but feels refreshed. Apichatsi begins to hum a tune, almost unconsciously. The village internal self-defense and order preservation force strictly patrols the road around the village. At the border of the village, they sit and rest for about an hour underneath a large tamarind tree. The tree is planted inside the temple compound, but nearly all the branches extend beyond the walls. There are two resting spots. One is next to the bamboo groove at the entrance to the village, and the other is under the tamarind tree at the edge of the village. They take a break after every third round around the village. They light a fire, drink water, eat food that they brought with them, smoke and chat. In not too many steps, they will reach their rest point, and so they speed up. Chop, chop! Apichatsi walks without speeding up. He walks back and forth, in meditation, and his goal becomes clearer in his mind. He will walk to the edge of the village. Then he will turn right, 
and walk along the road around the village and then go back to his house to bathe and go to sleep. The village internal self-defense and order preservation force remove their gear and put down their guns. They piss and stretch. They light a fire and open their bags in search of water and food. The monk separates himself to sit and clean off. His mouth continues to open and close to chant the incantation. The burning flames give off bright light and they switch off their battery-powered torches. Everyone takes care of their personal business and then they sit together in a circle. They pull their food and drink to make an offering to the monk and then get down to eating and drinking. As they eat, a Pichatsi walks into their field of vision. A member of the unit who left the circle after he was full sees the shadow clearly in his field of vision. He calls out in a loud voice. Who is it? Everyone in the unit stops short. Their hands halt the motion of picking up things. Their mouths stop chewing. Apichat smiles and yells, It's me, Teacher Apichat. Who? What are you doing in the dark? The original voice calls out again. He picks up his battery-powered torch and shines it onto the murky figure. Teacher Apichat, it's me, Apichat C answers. Why are you not answering? Are your intentions good or bad? The member calls out again and shines a light on Apichat C. All he can make out is a dim shadow, and so he looks for his gun. Everyone, all the members of the unit, take out their guns. The monk speeds up his uttering of the incantation. Answer, who are you? What sort are you? Answer! The light of the ten battery-powered torches shines on him, blindingly bright. I already told you, it's me, Apichat, Brother Tong. I'm Brother Tong. Do you hear what I ask you or not? Stop! Stop right there! Apichat C brings his feet to a halt. He shakes his head and answers. Brother Saw, it's me, Brother Tong, Teacher Apichat, Mama Deng's son. The house near the center of the village. I'm not anyone to worry about. I just came out for a walk to exercise. I told you, stop right there. If you don't, we'll shoot. No more warnings are uttered. The advancing body will not halt. The rattle of shotguns begins when he takes another step forward. The sound of cartridges is loud and the stench of the guns rises. The village internal self-defense and order preservation force bombards him in a blind craze. Apichat's entire body is riddled with holes from 12mm bullets. His screams envelop the entire village and then he collapses in a bloody mess. Once he falls, his body stretches and grows to the height of a four-story building. They rain bullets down upon his body without end. The monk chants the incantation until he is trembling. The bullets scatter and ricochet against houses. They pierce through the ceilings and go through the walls, cluster after cluster of houses. The villagers who have been sleeping in their houses must crouch down. They shake and tremble, but no one lets out a cry. The members of the unit shoot until they are out of bullets. The figure falls to the ground with a thunderous crash. With the monk in the lead, they unsteadily walk to examine the figure. The battery-powered torches brightly illuminate the figure covered in blood, revealing Apichatsi 
the entire unit shrinks back. They lower themselves down around the body and find that he is no longer breathing. They turn to look back into the light. One of them lifts Apichatsi's body and takes him back to his house. In the silent village, in the cemetery, Apichatsi and the gang still chatted in whispers in the trench. Each waited for the Hatsatdaling to arrive to eat the corpse. If it did not come, then their duty of burning the corpse would be complete. The corpse would be ashes, and tomorrow morning it would be time to collect the bones and put them in the stupa. It would probably be the first corpse where the ceremonies reached their proper completion, and Apichatsi's assertion would be confirmed. There is no hat saddling. The flaming branches on the pyre still shone, the embers glowing red. An odour accompanied the sound of the crackling, burning flesh and skin. The hat saddling never misses. The next moment it swooped down to the pyre and flapped its wings, hovered and alighted, standing tall next to the pyre. A pichatsi trembled all over without realising it. Others shook no less. They quivered until they forgot to pick up their weapons to deal with it. Standing at an imposing height, it swung its beak, a beak like an elephant's trunk, back and forth. It moved close to the pyre and flapped its wings one more time. The flames of the pyre were extinguished at once. The hat saddling stretched out its feet to pick up the pieces of the corpse. At that very moment, consciousness returned to the bodies of Apichatsi and the gang. They pulled out their weapons to deal with the hat saddling. They fired until they were satisfied. They scrambled out of the trench, swinging axes and knives. The hat saddling tottered back and forth from the force of the bullets. It ran in a circle before collapsing. Axes and knives broke open its body. Chup, 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 chup. The reverberations of its moans and groans nearly shattered the eardrums of those nearby. White blood flowed out like rain during a hurricane. The blood gushed out with force and in such quantity that it rose up to the knees of Apichatsi and the gang around the pyre. Nevertheless, they did not stop slicing it up. Breathing through their mouths, they went on with that all with all their might. The stench of the blood of the hat saddling rose. The blood flowed out and reached the height of their pelvises. The blood continued to rush into and flood other areas of the forest. At the moment, they were cutting the hat saddling in a great frenzy. It pulled itself to its feet. Everyone's hands stopped. A pichat sea withdrew at once. Others stepped back and hastily turned their backs to it. They waded and parted through the river of blood that now reached their waists. They waded through to escape. The hat saddling could not stand tall, but tottered unsteadily for a long time. That made it possible for Apichatsi and the gang to escape. They had to use nearly all their might to make it out of the blood that had reached their waists. With their strength nearly gone, they ran panting to the village. But one had to be sacrificed to the Hat Saddling. Once righted, the Hat Saddling flew into the air and hovered, 
hunting them down. It was able to swoop down and capture one person. This has never ever happened before. The Hatsad Ling had never before captured and eaten a live person. Ten days later, Apichat Si and the remaining members of the gang got a fever and chills. They died one by one. Apichat Si was the only one who narrowly survived. Chaos arose around the village. Once the village settled, silence replaced the chaos. Some migrated away from the village, but the majority took a stand in the village. The story of the hat saddling spreads to neighboring villages and sub-districts, reaching the district. It was not only Apichatsi's village where this happened. The very same thing happened in other villages and nearby districts. The situation in other villages seemed even graver. In the other villages, the hat saddling swooped down to eat people, day and night. One, two, three people every day. The hat saddling never skipped a day. This brought hardship everywhere until the central government in Kung Teb Mahanakorn had to send the entire military, the army and the air force, to help hunt the Hat Sadling. They come to patrol for threats and dangers and to train the villagers on how to protect themselves. They handed out shotguns to the units they trained. This was the beginning of the village internal self-defense and order preservation force. The hunting and struggles with the Hat Sadling by the army of the central government went on for about a year. The Hat Sadling did not show itself again and was unable to swoop down and capture humans to eat. But so as to not underestimate the Hat Sadling, the village internal self-defense and order preservation force took over the duties. Night after night, the Hat Sadling did not return. Once they were sure they would not be threatened again, the village internal self-defense and order preservation force went inactive. They still trained twice a year, though. Apichatsi's village and other villages returned to peace and normality. This went on for about five years. Then the chaos, followed by silence, returned once again. The village internal self-defense and order preservation force became active once again. The cause or the origin of the threat remains unclear. The central government provides no details to the district officers, who provide no details to the headmen, who provide no details to the villagers about what constitutes the threat. They don't know what is threatening them, and there are no details about what they must protect the village from. There is only danger, fear, and the darkness that is advancing and enveloping them. Every villager has to build a wall as tall as the top of their house. Silence is observed as soon as the Dharma lecture from the temple is over. No one dares to walk beyond the walls of their own home. Activities after 9pm only take place inside the walls of the houses. The village internal self-defense and order preservation force carries a duty to protect upon their shoulders. They must come out and patrol every evening without knowing what they are protecting the villagers from. Who is the enemy? No one has ever encountered the danger which is spoken of. But each time they go out to patrol, everyone is solemn and focused. It has been like this, night after night, for two or three years. Until the night that Apichatsi carelessly follows his heart and walks beyond the walls of his house, while walking as part of an exercise regime to improve his health. His body is riddled with bullets.
again. That was Particles of Perpetual Paralysis by Pugradat. And the chapter of the book is titled An Obstacle to Apichatsi's Exercise Regime. Okay. See you all in episode one. And I think we'll make some sense of that story. Nicer, wasn't it? Okay. Bye-bye.